Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter two, The Scar. Harry lay flat on his back, breathing hard as though he had been running. He had awoken from a vivid dream with his hands pressed over his face. The old scar on his forehead, which was shaped like a bolt of lightning, was burning beneath his fingers. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm at Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, we have a very special Every Flavored Bean episode today on our Patreon. Tell me about it. It was AJ's idea, and it sounds excellent. <laughs> it, was AJ's, it was AJ's idea. So Harry and Sirius, we find out, are pen pals in this chapter. And so we are going to dream a little about who our ideal pen pals are. I mean, it raises a philosophical question. Can a uh, long-lost, formerly accused murderer of your parents, who is now your godfather and closest thing you have to a parent, properly be a pen pal, or is that crossing some relational boundaries? Ooh, I didn't realize it was going to be a philosophical question. Matt, you Hmm. have a story for us on the theme of earnestness. I do. And I'm going to tell it with as much kind of sincerity and genuineness as I can muster. During the pandemic, my family and I took a lot of walks, especially right at the beginning of the pandemic, like that March when everything shut down and outside seemed relatively safe. And we had a couple of standard routes, right? We could go right and then go up into the forest, or we could go left and go down by the ocean. As I said, we we were lucky to live in a place that had lots of interesting places to walk. And we got familiar with these routes. But as we started to emerge from the pandemic or the pandemic changed, one of our routes, one of our favorite routes, which went down by the beach through a salt marsh, a bridge washed out and they had to replace a bridge. And so we were on a family walk and the path was blocked. You had to go on a detour. And I was walking with Sam and Colette and Cammie and Danny, they went a different direction, but Sam had wanted to see like 
some wildlife or something, or he had seen like something crawl off into the reeds and wanted to follow it. So I went with Sam and we walked on this little detour. And the way the detour led took us to this road, which had a blind turn. And it's not a very busy road, but it had this blind turn and there wasn't much of a shoulder. And I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be walking with a nine-year-old on this road. But because it's a road that doesn't have a lot of traffic, I figured it'd be okay. But what I did is I walked as close as I could to the side of the road and I put Sam like up on what was basically like a berm, like it was a the raised ground. And I was holding his hand and he was walking there and I was walking just on the edge of the street. And I was a little anxious because we were just coming to this 15 or 20 foot section where we really couldn't see if a car was coming, right? And Sam, I could tell, was not loving not being able to walk on flat pavement. He was having to walk on the uneven <laughs> grass and rock and with beach rose bushes like pushing out towards him or whatever, right? And so he said, Dad, how come you're walking down there and I'm walking up here? And I think in the past, when he, if he was younger, I would have just said, oh, I don't know, buddy. Right? You know, and we would just talked about what his experience was like, whatever. I would have deflected the question. But he's nine. You know, he's a little older. And I think, as I've mentioned in the podcast before, because I'm a priest, like, they see me dealing with death and people dying a lot. And so I just said to him, I was like, well, you know, buddy, I want you up there because I can't really see if there are cars are coming. And if a car comes around the turn, I don't want you in the street. And he said, but you're in the street. And I said, yeah, yeah, but my job is to keep you safe. And so we're going to walk this way. And, you know, maybe next time we won't walk this way, but I want you up on the side there and I'll walk down here. And he was like, well, well, what will happen if a car comes around the corner you don't see? I was like, well, I mean, hopefully it'll see me in time, right? And I'll jump out, you know, I'll try to jump out of the way or whatever. I, you know, don't worry, buddy. I think we're okay. And then he looked down at the ground and we walked for a few more paces. And we weren't quite yet to the corner, but we were approaching the corner. And I could see he was thinking very carefully and thoughtfully. And then he said, with a lot of reflection and sincerity, he said, don't worry, Dad. I'll be okay. <laughs> I said, oh, buddy, are you worried about me? He said, no, I know the way home from here. The reason I tell that, the reason I tell that story about earnest about earnestness, is because I, Sam was fully earnest. Like when yeah. I think of earnestness, I think of like having an attitude that is without any kind of double mindedness. Right? There's no irony. There's no cynicism. It's just what you genuinely feel. Right? The less earnest response would have been for him to say something like, "Don't worry, Dad. I'll be okay." Mom will take care of us. We'll make it without you if you don't if you don't make it around this corner. But on the inside, feel like, do I know need to know the way home? Like, I don't know how to get home. This is a problem. He didn't check with me first, right? But he was just like fully earnest. He was when he was looking down, thinking he was like, okay, I go left, I go right, straight right home. Okay, I'm fine. Like that was that was all that was going through his head, and that's all he was communicating to me. And even though it wasn't the thing I expected to hear from him, because of its kind of single mindedness and its sincerity that there were no half thoughts or unspoken thoughts that I thought it was a fairly earnest interaction with him. Matt, I love, first of all, I love Sam. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a perfect child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Second of all, I think, I think that that is such a wonderful definition of earnestness, where not only is there no sarcasm or cynicism, but there's, there's nothing unsaid. Nothing unsaid, exactly, right. 
it's the full thought. It is right. all the things. It is yeah. like this rounded thing. Yeah. And Sam's conclusion, right? Like that was the that was the whole of his thought. Was, was I'd be, you know, I'll be able to get home. And yeah. who knows what that would mean? But yeah. I think it's a wonderful definition. I think it is sort of also why we an adverb that often goes with earnest is like childlike, like a childlike earnestness yeah. is because children tend not to hold words back. They don't they don't have the kind of social constraints where they think, oh, this person would not want to hear this part of what I'm thinking. They just say what right. they're thinking. And this is what Sam was thinking. And he said it right. He wasn't concerned to take care of me in that moment. He was just like the don't worry, dad was not like, don't worry, we'd miss you. It was I know the way home, and that's the really important thing in this situation. As we round this blind turn, don't walk us this way anymore. <laughs> Vanessa. Yes. In all earnestness, yes. I would love to hear this chapter recapped quite swiftly in, say, 30 Ooh. seconds. Okay. I can. 35, I 40, try. should we go? So let's do 30. <laughs> I will earnestly try my best, Matt. Okay. Can I count you in? Please. I'd appreciate that. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry wakes up because his scar is hurting and he kind of remembers a dream with Voldemort and he can see a room from a weird point of view and he's like, who should I talk to about this? My scar is hurting. Well, I don't want to worry Dumbledore and I don't want Ron to borrow his, bother his dad and Hermione is going to say the wrong thing. And so I'm going to write to Sirius because he's my my favorite pen pal and I'm going to be like, hey, no big deal, but my scar hurts. Also, Dudley struggling on his diet. And then and he, we also get some reflections from Harry like he wants to go to the Weasley's house for the quidditch world cup did that all fit like that last sentence was that in not that last oh, sentence. okay no. i just thought you just like you just had like a vista of seven seconds left to you so you were like i'll just say this last sentence slowly Free and easy. no okay are you ready matt to recap uh, yeah let's do it okay on your mark get set go so Harry wakes up and his scar is hurting. And he's like, why is my scar hurt? The last time my scar hurt, Voldemort was near, but Voldemort's not here. And he's like, but wait a minute, I have these weird memories of like an old person and people talking about uh, being murdered and I can't see the time. And and uh, and then he says, who can I tell about this? I can tell Hermione and she'd say this and she'd tell me to go to Dumbledore and I can't tell Dumbledore. So what? maybe I'll tell Ron and Ron would say to go to his dad and I can't tell his dad. But what I really want is a parent. The closest thing I have to a parent is serious. And let me write a little bit of serious that doesn't actually say what I want to tell him. And, uh, and then the, that's the end of the chapter. <laughs> yeah yeah matt one of the things that's really earnest in this chapter is the thought process that harry is walking through in order to decide to write to sirius that's interesting tell me more about about why you're saying that like what's earnest about the process i think the process is really interesting like he goes he tracks his way through these different important people in his life and eventually ends up at sirius but where do you see earnestness guiding that progression? I wonder if we are able to be more earnest sometimes while in isolation. Because Aww. he goes through and essentially figures out the pitfalls of writing to each person. Hmm. And is able to be honest with himself as to why he doesn't want to write to Hermione. Yeah. With Hermione, he knows exactly what she's going to say. She's going to say he should reach out to Dumbledore. And he doesn't want to reach out to Dumbledore because he's embarrassed. He doesn't want to reach out to Ron because Ron will tell Mr. Weasley. And again, there's this embarrassment thing. And I think that 
in front of other people, we're embarrassed that we're embarrassed, right? Yeah. So he would he would tell Ron and Hermione and they would encourage him to reach out, you know, to Mr. Weasley and Dumbledore. Yeah. And he'd sort of like, you know, shame, ashamedly go and talk to them. But he he gets to, in isolation, be like, I don't want that. Like that yeah. is not actually what I want right now. Yeah. And I think that where all of these like sort of small earnest thoughts lead to the most earnest thought, which is like, I wish I had a parent to yeah. talk to. And that I think is so earnest is something that he would never say aloud to anyone. Yeah. And that's when the realization comes about Sirius. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that, but I think it's a really great way to frame it, which is that I think it's possible our confessions, our personal confessions, our private ones are more earnest than our public statements, right? Because we're by ourselves. What's the point of having a double meaning of your own inside your head that you're trying to hide from yourself, right? <laughs> like, right. like you, you, in your head, you, you tell yourself what you really think. And sometimes those thoughts are not true or not the right thoughts to have, but you do right. often say what you really think in your own head. And that's, you're right, that's what we track in Harry's mind as he's going through this progression of folks to arrive at Sirius. He is having this kind of earnest process of reflection where he's like, I mean, you know, it starts with just like, I miss my friends. A friend <laughs> is a person that offers this kind of support. You know who's a great friend? Hermione's a great friend. What would Hermione say? And he knows Hermione pretty well and I think has a pretty good guess as to what Hermione would say. Like his kind of imagination of what Hermione would say sounds a lot like Hermione. And and the advice she gives, big surprise, I think is actually probably good advice. Advice he probably should have followed, right? I agree. But... But, like, says, go talk to Dumbledore. And and then he imagines, okay, what would it be like to talk to Dumbledore? And then he's really honest with himself, right? Like, it's very—the text described it very briefly. Even inside his head, the words sounded stupid. That is the words of his own kind of speech to Dumbledore, right? He's like, oh, no, I'm, that sounds too stupid. I want Dumbledore to respect me. I have all—he has these expectations of me. He can be honest about that and let go of it. Then he thinks about his other friend. Okay, what about my other friend, Ron— and he imagines what Ron would say, and I think it, again, does a pretty good imitation of, of Ron's response, and that makes him think about Mr. Weasley, but also he knows he doesn't have the relationship with Mr. Weasley, and that takes him to what I want as a parent, exactly what you said, Vanessa, and Sirius is the closest thing he has to a parent. But then he writes Sirius this letter, which is full of the kind of double-mindedness that it sounds like he was trying to avoid or that he's been avoiding in this thought process, right? He doesn't actually tell Sirius what he actually wants or what he's most scared of. He hides information from Sirius. After having gone through this very earnest process of reflection and coming to like the right answer, why do you think he can't follow through with it and actually write the earnest letter? Such a good question. I don't know. So I'm going to think out loud okay, <laughs> in front great. of you. I was thinking in this chapter about I want songs, which is like a pretty mm. typical musical term. You know, we think of Maria and Sound of Music with, you know, she wants to be confident. We think of Ariel, right, of like, I want legs to be on land. Belle wants to be not in a provincial town. And these are all songs sung alone on stage, right? Yep. And then you go and watch these characters try to get these things, and there is shame about the purity of the desire. Hmm. And I think I did talk myself into my answer. I think Harry is embarrassed. He doesn't want Sirius to think that he's weak. Yep. And he, he also doesn't want Sirius to know that he's treating him like a dad. 
yeah. right? I think he's like a little ashamed about yeah. how much this relationship means to him. Yeah. You know, Sirius's letters are a little conversational and light. Yep. And I think that we as adults know that probably being on the run isn't all fun and games and Sirius is trying to make that seem better than it is for Harry's sake. And so I think Harry is trying to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, I think from a very young age, we like know how to spin so that people maybe don't find out our yeah. earnest yeah. wishes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I wasn't sure about the answer to my question either, which is why I asked it. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, what I was thinking as you gave your answer is like, Harry wants a parent and Sirius isn't one. Right. I mean, Aww. you know, parents yeah. come in different shapes and sizes, right? But like in an ideal form, it is a person that you feel like you can show your weakness to and that you can say the hard things to comfortably and that I think that he knows that Sirius has its potential and he knows that Sirius has this relationship with his parents, but they haven't built the kind of trust. They haven't had the time to do that. And right. And so, like, this is the closest thing I have to a parent. This is the kind of person I ought to write. But when I actually have to write the thing I want to write because he's not that person, I have to write the thing that's that's not actually what I want to say. I have to protect myself against all the things that you just named, Vanessa, which is like, I want him to think I'm brave and I want him to think I'm strong and I want him to think I'm not worried about these things. And so I can't really be earnest about what I need to ask of him because what I most want him to do is to have a perception of me, which protects the relationship as I see it now, which in an ideal relationship is not what you have with a, a parent, yeah. which makes it really sad, right? Because at the end of the last book, you feel like, oh, he is going back to the Dursleys, but he has serious, he has this kind of this lifeline to the memory of his parents, a person who knew his parents, who wants to be protective of him in a parental way, even though he's on the run, even though he's not right there. You see like this this lifeline being thrown to Harry. And then in the second chapter of book four, we see, yeah, but you know what? His parents are still gone. Sirius can't fulfill that role, even if Harry wants him to, and even if he's the closest thing to that role for him. Yeah. It's the world that's preventing that, right? Not yeah. serious. There's nothing that Sirius and Harry are doing wrong that's right. preventing that. Like if they had spent the summer together, right? He would be there by now, right? Yeah. 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 I will say that with the nine-year-old in my life, she does not like sharing how she's feeling. Hmm. And I have found that it trains me in a very strange way she only will really share how she's feeling with any of us when she breaks down, when she starts crying. Yeah. And whenever she starts crying, part of me is so relieved because I'm like, now we're going to find out what's been wrong yeah. for the last however long, right? She's been upset for two days and she won't tell us. And like, now we can get the information from her. And that has been true since she was very little. And I think that there's just something human about wanting to guard that information, that most vulnerable, earnest information. Harry's most vulnerable concern about himself is that people are going to think he's needy or weak. Yep. And and like that is the Dursleys have raised him to have those yeah. fears. And yeah. so, of course, he's afraid, you know. Yeah. And he's been brought into this world where like, the whole Wizarding World's expectations are on him, right? Like, that was the yeah. one of the dilemmas of the first book, which is, like, he's the boy who lived, and so he must be special. And it's about to be one of the problems in this book, right? He's the one that somehow gets entered in the Triwizard Tournament because he's special. And so he, even if he didn't choose that role for himself, it's been foisted upon him, and he feels the need to protect it because so many people's opinions of him depend upon 
that sense of who he is, right? Yeah. You know, we, we laughed when I told that story about Sam. And it is funny, right? But it also didn't hurt my feelings, right? Because I am his parent. And what I want him to tell me is exactly what's going on in his head. Because right. it, his job is not to protect me or protect some image of who he ought to be to me. Or at least I don't want it to be. I know that's not always the way the parental relationships work, right? And so actually, like, when there is that absolute transparency, even if it's to my detriment, like, as a parent, they were like, that's, I love it. That's great. Like, I laughed, but it also felt good, even though he was expressing absolute indifference to my my perishing. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But I'm still like, oh, great. So it it sounds like what we're saying is that earnestness can come in in two places. When you are with yourself and being duplicitous doesn't serve yourself at all, because why try to hide something from yourself? Or when you're in a relationship where you trust the other's care for you so so completely that you're willing to to just say what's on your mind, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my other question, Vanessa, had to do with this definition that I'm kind of tentatively constructing around earnestness, which is that it has to do with being of a single mind, like not having any any double-mindedness or two-mindedness or like other things going on. You say what you think and your mind is in is unified or whatever. I mean, one of the things that we learn at the beginning of this chapter, and it's just a hint now, and that's going to be developed through the rest of the series, obviously, is that Voldemort has access to Harry's mind, right? And vice versa, which complicates the possibility for Harry to be earnest, even with himself, I think, right? I mean, the example you gave is that in isolation, one can be in earnest. And I think that this chapter shows how that works, especially in the progression of characters that he thought through as you describe, Vanessa, but like we know later on in the series, there will be times when he cannot be honest with himself or earnest with himself because like there are things he ought not to think just in case Voldemort will know he's thinking them, right? And like where he actually has to start policing his own thoughts and being of two minds about himself, this really impossible task because if you can't be present to your own thoughts, right? Like this is going to get problematic and it's going to get problematic because Harry can't be single-minded. He's always of two minds, at least until Voldemort is purged from him. But Matt, isn't that true for all of us? Hmm. Like, I think we are capable of being earnest when we are alone. I think it takes a lot of work, right? Yeah. Something in my chaplaincy, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, is like people trying to figure out what it is that they really want. And I think that Often those two or three or four minds are society and patriarchal norms and white supremacy and and our parents and our grandparents' expectations of us. And, you know, when I was a freshman advisor, I would have students come to me and be like, I do not know if I want to be a doctor or if I have just been told that I need to be a doctor for so long that I've started to think that. So I think that as wary as I am of several of the metaphors in this series, Voldemort impacting the way that Harry is thinking literally actually works for me because he's also impacting the way that Harry is thinking outside of the invasion of Harry's brain. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the signature of the mind. It's like different relationships and different wounds and different traumas and things are always impacting the way we think. And even if we're not aware of the influences that are going on in our brains. They're there, right? And so earnestness is a rare thing, and it really does require deep feelings of safety and trust and care, which is what the chapter shows us. I mean, it's it's why that progression of characters in his head is so telling. Like, he goes to Hermione first, 
And and I think it's also important that like the imagined response, which we have described as very recognizably Hermione, is also a very direct and earnest response, right? Yeah. Hermione is saying exactly what she thinks to Harry without trying yeah. to protect him or herself, just saying, this is what I think. And Ron, too. Ron sounds recognizable in Harry's imagination of Ron because this is exactly what Ron would say, which is also unfiltered by self-protection or anxiety or worry about what Harry will think, right? He just says, like, oh, boy, I don't know. I think you ought to do this. It's the earnestness of his imagined responses and that the fact that he turns to these two friends first just bespeaks how much trust and care there is between them because those are the the necessary conditions for any earnest expression or articulation. Yeah. I do want to say we've been talking very positively about earnestness, Hmm. and obviously it is a virtue. I think earnestness, at least for adults, should always be disseminated carefully. Like, Hmm. we can earnestly have hateful thoughts. We can earnestly have selfish thoughts that we want to talk ourselves into better versions of. And we can also, like, have an earnest opinion while we're watching someone struggle and know that, like, our opinion is not necessarily helpful and we're actually best kept quiet. And so I think that as beautiful as earnestness is, it's beautiful when it's, like, self-reflection or when it's with a trusted person, you know, like, I just don't want to say, like, it's always a virtue. And I think sometimes the trick to a good relationship is sometimes not saying what you think. Yep. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I mean, like, it's not your place to share what you think about certain things. It's not your place to share your earnest thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, I I had a friend once who practiced a version of radical honesty. That I yeah. know that radical honesty is a is a book and it's a whole like approach to relationships and so forth. And I'm not making any comment upon this book, which I'm not super familiar with. I just know that this person's practice of radical honesty sometimes verged upon cruelty, right? Like, right. Like you can tell the truth while still caring for how a person receives it. And I think we ought to tell the right. truth. We shouldn't lie and we shouldn't avoid the truth. But we, I think, if we're trying to build a relationship, when we tell the truth, we can be aware of how that truth will land. And use language, which is a manipulable tool, to try to deliver that message in a way that it can be heard and then builds up rather than tears down. And I think this friend of mine sort of thought of honesty as license to be indifferent to how cruelly their yeah, statements might the land. Truth. Yeah, it's just, I'm sorry, I'm a truth teller. I call it like I see it. You know, like that that kind of thing, which is yeah. like, I mean, you can call a thing like you see it and describe it honestly. But if you honestly care for the person who's hearing it then you also have to care about how they receive it and try to figure out, and it can be a difficult thing, but try to figure out how to tell the truth in a way that can be heard and helps rather than hurts. But I just think not all truths are your business, or maybe it's that they're not all objectively true. I just, my grandmother really hated a haircut that I I loved and I looked great in, in high school. And I saw my grandmother two times a week. And every time I saw her, she told me that she truthfully and earnestly hated my haircut (laughs) and like that right like it's just bullying at a certain point yep right and like i loved her and it became a joke but truths are not absolute yeah that's right i mean i think the other thing we haven't visited etymology corner yet but i think we haven't etymology corner might help us with this because earnestness comes from a proto-germanic word which means seriousness right and on the one Mm -hmm. hand that could be serious in the sense of like single-mindedness, right? Like, this is so important. I can't, I can't deflect or I can't 
undermined with second guesses or whatever, right? So I'm going to be single-minded. That's that one sense of earnestness. But the other thing is, like, it can't be trivial, right? Like, right. is it actually important that your grandmother tell you that she doesn't like your haircut? Like, how important and how many times does she have to tell you? Like, when does it become less important, <laughs> right. right? Like, earnestness also means I'm being this frank with you because this is a thing that deserves the candor I'm lending it, right? And right. And so maybe it's hard. You can't be earnest if you're criticizing someone trivially. Right. Or making right. something your business, which actually isn't your business, because that's not being serious. That's not taking them seriously. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's not, yeah, that's something else. That's not earnestness. Yeah. Yeah. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, one other thing I just want to point to, because I love it so much, is Harry's earnest desire to get invited to the Weasleys to go to the Quidditch World Cup. And I know that there's there's something quote-unquote childlike about this, but I feel this so hard. As a middle-aged person, I still have thoughts like this where it's like, I'm so sorry you're sick, but I'm super glad you're canceling our meeting each day. (laughs) Right? Like we can earnestly have two responses to something at the same time. There is a possibility for earnest two-mindedness, you're right. Especially when I think so. <laughs> especially when you're sick and I get to go to the beach. <laughs> I mean, like, I am genuinely worried. And I'm like, should I bring chicken noodle soup on my way to the beach? That's right. That's right. I think that Harry genuinely is worried about Voldemort and also genuinely, genuinely wants to go to yep. the Quidditch World Cup. That's right. The, the, These are yeah. Two equal desires. And actually, yeah. I would say that he can know that the Voldemort thing is a bigger deal, but he wants to go to the Quidditch World Cup more than he cares about the Voldemort thing. Right. Like, Quidditch World Cup is happening soon. Like, this right. whole Voldemort thing is going to play out over at least weeks. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> 
So, Vanessa, this is a very exciting day in the history of the second series of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. At least it's I would say for in me. the history of Not Sorry Productions. What? Yeah, this is a big deal. In all earnestness, you were saying that? In all earnestness. I'm very excited about this. This has been something we've been wanting to do for a long time, Matt. It is. What we are doing, dear listeners, is we are introducing a new sacred reading practice from a non-Western, non-Abrahamic tradition. We are introducing a Buddhist sacred reading practice. A lot of my family is Buddhist, and I care a lot about the Buddhist tradition, both its teachings and its practice and just the tradition in general. I know some Buddhist rituals just because of family practices, but I'm not a scholar or expert in the Buddhist tradition. But I've been doing some research, and since we were starting a new book, I thought it might be time to introduce a new sacred reading practice. The practice we're going to introduce today is called the Four Reliances. And it's given this name by a really well-known scholar of Buddhism named Robert A.F. Thurman. Thurman was the first Westerner who was ordained in a Tibetan Buddhist tradition by the Dalai Lama himself, by Tenzin Gyatso. And he was a professor of Buddhism at both Amherst and Columbia University. He's also the dad of Uma Thurman, interestingly. That's wild. It's wild, right. And the essay in which he discusses the four reliances is a little bit older. It's called Buddhist Hermeneutics, and we can post a version of it on the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text website among our resources. But I'm just going to explain to you like where the four alliances come from, why they were generated, and how they operate within Buddhism. And then I'm going to talk about how we're going to try to use it for our community. This sounds great, Matt. I'm so excited. So Buddhist scriptures are very complex. It's a different scriptural tradition. They come from lots of different times and places. There's lots of different stories. There's, you know, by orders of magnitude more than there are in, say, Judaism or Christianity, just more documents. And one of the things that's really tricky about them is that even in the most ancient and reliable documents, sometimes the Buddha would contradict himself and commentaries would say exactly opposite things. And so very early on in interpretation, Buddhist scholars were thinking about how do we know what the right teaching is, right? Mm-hmm. And there, there are all these kinds of reflections upon how can you know when a teaching is reliable? How can you know what meaning it should carry for you in your life? And also thinking about why would these scriptures carry contradictions? One of the kind of stories that comes out when they think about like why these teachings might have different meanings, the metaphor is given that there's a man whose house is burning and he runs into his house to save his children and his children don't care that the house is burning. They're all playing with their toys, right? And so in order to get them out of the burning house, he tells each child that their favorite toy is outside. He tells one that the deer, a deer cart is outside, one that a horse cart is outside, one that a bull cart is outside. And because they each like a deer and horses and bulls, respectively, they all run outside when what's outside is actually just a bull cart. And two of them are disappointed, but all three are saved. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense that like for pragmatic reasons, sometimes the teaching is adjusted to the audience Mm-hmm. which makes sense for why the Buddha might teach the way that he teaches. But for the person who's hearing the lesson, like, what are you supposed to do with it? And so the Buddhist tradition, especially a particular tradition called the Madhyamaka tradition, that is closely aligned with Tibetan Buddhism and an uh, important figure in Tibetan Buddhism named Tsongkhapa, is this thing called the Four Alliances. So the, the Four Alliances, at least according to Professor Thurman, Uma's dad, are as follows. <laughs> Right. The first is trust the teaching, not the teacher. Ooh, love that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I think that really this might be really useful for us as we think about this set of novels that comes from an author that has some problematic views. Right. Very early on, the Buddha said, trust the teaching, not the teacher. Now, what's really important about this teaching from the Buddhist tradition is that there wasn't a sense that the Buddha 
conferred enlightenment on anybody himself, right? He wasn't the carrier of enlightenment and therefore designed to give it to somebody else. Rather, what the Buddha would do is set a person on a path toward their own enlightenment, right? So that's why you would trust the teaching, not the teacher. It's not like the teacher gives it to me. It's the teacher guides me on the way that I can find it myself, right? And so for our practice, when we're reading Harry Potter, what I thought the first step could do for us is it could help us think about what question the passage is raising for us, right? Not necessarily what we think the author means by writing this passage, but what path is it setting us upon? Like what direction is it pointing us in so we can see what questions it raises for us and how we can arrive at whatever meaning we need to arrive at. So that's the first step, the teaching and not the teacher. And for our purposes, that's going to mean what question does that raise in us, like in our own, mm -hmm. in our own sense of the reading. The second step of the four alliances is the meaning and not the letter. Now, this is kind of obscure. And actually, in the Buddhist tradition, they call it the practical dharma rather than the verbal dharma, right? Hmm. But what that means, or at least the way that's been interpreted by the Buddhist tradition, is to turn away from sort of the semantic content of the words towards the practical actions that the passage calls you towards. So the way we might talk about this in our practice here on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is not what does this passage mean, but what would it have you do? The third of the four reliances is called the definitive rely upon the definitive and not the interpreted. Again, this is kind of obscure language that Thurman uses. And it's tricky because the meaning of this reliance has been contested throughout the Buddhist tradition. But one of the things that the Madhyamaka tradition suggests and that Thurman in his essay suggests is that what's at stake in this third step is that we try to get at the deeper meaning of the passage. This is kind of like the Sod, maybe, maybe analogously mm -hmm. kind of like the Sod. But <laughs> what the tradition that Thurman's sourcing thinks is that, you know, language is really malleable, right? If, if it's raining outside, there are any number of ways that I could say that it's raining outside. I could say that it's raining outside. I could say, today, there is water falling from the sky in small droplets. I could say, there is precipitation, which is not frozen, right? Like, there are lots of different <laughs> ways. Like, words are malleable. And this step wants you to move away from that towards what the deeper thing is, what the deeper meaning is, right? So, given all the kind of literary or verbal movements going on in the passage, what's really at stake? What's underneath all this that the, the passage is really trying to communicate to you? So that's step three. And then the fourth reliance is to rely upon wisdom rather than the rational, which is to say that, you know, to take an example from the Christian tradition, you can understand the command to love your neighbor. You can know what that means, but to know what that means is very different than to experience what loving your neighbor actually feels like, right? So for our purposes, we're going to and our fourth step, we're going to think about what experience from your own life the passage raises for you. Great. I love the different way that this is shedding light on similar practices, but not the same as yeah. to what we've been doing. So I'll walk us through this and I'll go through the four steps and I'll remind you and our listeners of the four steps and myself of the four steps as we go. <laughs> but I've selected a passage and this practice is especially suitable when meanings are unclear. Right? What they're trying to do is say, like, when there's contest, when you're not sure what something means, these are the tools you use to try to get at what, you, what it ought to mean for you. And so I selected a passage from this chapter, which was unclear to me. So the passage I selected is the final paragraph from the chapter, which is what comes right after he's written this letter to, to Sirius. Right? He's written a letter to Sirius, which doesn't really say everything he wants to say and tries to protect his own sense of what Sirius's perception of him might be. And then having completed the letter, this is the paragraph we have, which is sort of inside Harry's head. 
Yes, thought Harry, that looked all right. There was no point putting in the dream. He didn't want it to look as though he was too worried. He folded up the parchment and laid it aside on his desk, ready for when Hedwig returned. Then he got to his feet, stretched, and opened his wardrobe once more. Without glancing at his reflection, he started to get dressed before going down to breakfast. Okay, so the first of the four reliances in this tradition is to rely upon the teaching and not the teacher. The way we're interpreting that is to think about what question this raises for us, not what question we think the author wants us to raise or what question the author has or the text has, but for us and our own reading, what question does this raise for us? So so is there a question that arose in this passage for you, Vanessa? What is at stake for me in this passage is what would it take for Harry to want to glance at his reflection? There's something sad about someone who can't quite meet their own eye. And I feel like that is what we're watching Harry do, right? If the letter actually looked all right, then he'd be able to look himself in the eye and be like, yep, I did it. But he, yeah, he seems ashamed of what he did. Yeah. I think that was why I chose this, because a question arose for me, which is slightly different from yours, but related. My question was, why doesn't he want to look himself in the mirror? Yeah. Like the chapter starts with him looking himself in the mirror, almost, right? The chapter starts with him waking up because of the pain. But the first thing he does is look at the scar because he feels pain and it looks the same to him. He's not sure why it hurts more. Right. But then, you know, the the text makes a note that he does not look at the scar at the end. And I want to know why he doesn't look at the scar. And I think I think your answer is is a good one and a possible one that a person doesn't want to see their own reflection. A person that wasn't, doesn't want to look at themselves in the mirror, that can often be a sign of like shame. He didn't, he wasn't honest with Sirius. And so he does, he hasn't been honest with himself. And so he can't look at the, look at the scar. I, I was also wondering, I think for me, maybe the question was like something to do with avoidance, right? Like it's maybe I'll just, pre- mm-hmm. he doesn't want to see the yeah, scar maybe again. Or maybe I'll pretend it doesn't hurt. Maybe if I ignore it, it'll go away. Yeah. yeah I think the question is like, what, your question, I think, is the right one. Like, what would it take for him to not want to yeah. look away, to be able to look back at it again? Yeah. Or at least look in his own eyes, right? Like, maybe. Yeah, that's that's another way, great way to think about it. Like, for the sake of avoiding the scar, he won't look at himself. Yeah. Right. And that's all, right? Like, that's, that's one of the things about trauma, yeah. right? Is that some sort of scar makes you not want to see yourself. Yeah. It can infect a bigger part of us. Yeah, that's right. And also just about insecurity and shame in general, right? Sometimes those parts right. of ourselves that we're not proud of or ashamed of shame us so much that we refuse to even to look at the things that we ought to be proud of or that are good about us or whatever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Great questions. So the second reliance in the four alliances, the way it's phrased traditionally, at least in Thurman's articulation, is the meaning and not the letter. And The way we're going to interpret that and for our own practice is what would the passage have you do rather than have you know? So if you apply this question to your own life, your own relationships, what does it take for us to look at ourselves? What does it take for Harry to look at himself? Then what does the passage want us to do? The passage wants us to be more vulnerable than we are. Hmm. Something that, you know, we as an organization say is that vulnerability should be like a yoga practice. You should be trying to push yourself, but never risk hurting yourself. Hmm. And Harry arguably is doing that, right? Like even just setting a letter to Sirius is a risk, but I think we want him to push himself with the vulnerability. Maybe if he caught his own reflection, he would say, do you know what? You got to say, 
just, I'm really yeah. scared something. Yeah. I think that this passage is asking us to be a little bit more vulnerable than we are. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think the way you phrased the question in the first step was really great because the way, what you asked was like, what would it take for Harry to do this? Right. And right. I mean, what this makes me think is that lots of folks in my life are looking away from mirrors that they ought to be looking in because of things that they're frightened of seeing. So it's tricky though, because there's a scar on Harry's head, right? There's a source yeah. of pain that he does not want to be faced with, like an active source of pain, something that woke him up in the middle of the night and that has has made him like think through all these other people that can help him. And so you understand why he doesn't want to look, why he why he yeah. wants it to go away. Like, how do you help someone who quite understandably wants to look away from that pain? How do you help them still see themselves? It's such a particular circumstance, right? Like every single person would need a different thing to be able to to see the good in themselves. So there's no like single one size fits all solution. I guess maybe what it wants me to do is just pay attention to this, to pay attention to how how hurt causes us to look away even from ourselves and to try to to see people and help them see themselves clearly. I don't know. Sirius, I think, is doing the right thing by not oversharing his concerns mm. while on the road. Yeah. But I think sometimes sharing a little bit opens up the possibility for others to share. And yeah. so I wonder if that's the thing, right? Is yeah. like start opening up to those people a little bit, right? Like that reciprocity of trust can often help people feel safe. Yeah, I think that's right. And maybe it's related to your first response, right? Which was like, vulnerability is like a practice, right? Like, and one of the things that happens is if if we can be courageous enough to be vulnerable to others, then they might let us look at them, right? Like if right. part of being vulnerable is allowing someone else to look at me, even if I don't want to look at myself, right? And if we can practice that with caring and kindness and empathy and thoughtfulness, then that can help people be seen. Even if they can't see themselves, they can be seen in their wholeness, not ignoring their hurts, but also recognizing the the strengths and their goodness, even in the places they don't want to recognize in themselves. So be vulnerable. It was your answer. Again, you're killing this practice, Vanessa. Yeah. So the third reliance, and this is the kind of tricky one, it goes by the name, the definitive and not the interpreted. For the purposes of our practice, we're going to think about what is the deeper truth that lies underneath these words? These malleable words, these fickle words that can have multiple meanings, what is the deeper thing that's being pointed at here? What's the deeper truth that this passage is is directing us to? I, there's just a lot of avoidance in this paragraph, Yeah. right? Like, there is no point in putting in the dream. Well, the dream is everywhere in this letter, even if you don't name the dream. He folded up yeah. the parchment and laid it aside, right? He got to his feet. And with that, without glancing at his reflection, there's just like avoidance on avoidance on avoidance. Mm -hmm. He's just avoiding a lot, which could point to like, oh, he shouldn't avoid things. But it also could just point to like, he's got a lot. Yeah. Like this is a lot for a kid. There's a par another paragraph, a long paragraph in this chapter where it's like, Harry is used to pain. And then it like lists all the times he's been in pain before. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's just a lot. Yeah. The thing that made me choose this passage is that I wanted to know what's going on with Harry, that he won't look at himself in the mirror. Right? And I read that pretty quickly, and I was just like, that's weird. Why is he looking at himself in the mirror? Which is why I chose this passage. But the conversation we've had so far, I think, kind of builds to something what you're saying, which is like, because Harry is such a good kid and a resilient kid, I think it's easy to forget how much hurt and injury and loss 
is just below the surface, right? Yeah. I mean, it's always just, it's always right there for him. And because he's such a hero and such a good kid, it's easy to forget that. But I think Thurman sometimes calls this the profound or hidden meaning, right? And the, the profound thing is just the deeper thing, the hidden thing. What's always right under the surface for Harry is just all this loss, right? And there's a sense in which it's so close to the surface that if he looks at the surface, if he looks at himself, right, even that picture of himself will just remind him. Like that scar on his forehead, even though it's a small scar, just hides right. so much. And and it's just it's just surfacing now in this acute way because he feels pain there. But it's just a luxury of us as readers to just like, oh, he's a happy kid most of the time in these books. And he is. I think that he actually does have happiness and joy with his friends. But there's so much underneath. There's so much underneath. And I think for us, too, like a lot of the people that we interact with every day who might have the same kind of outward affect as Harry are also often carrying a lot. And yeah, there is something really important in us trying to really look, right? Trying to really see people for all that they are, not just for what they're interested or willing to show to others for fear of being perceived as weak or or vulnerable or wounded. I just feel like sometimes I'll look at someone I love and be like, oh, you're thinking about this sick person in your life or your grief about something. And you don't know whether to bring it up because they might want to talk about it or not, you know, like those moments. Yeah. And I'm not sure what to do with that. But like there's just there's always just so much pain under what people are saying. Well, Vanessa, you are so intuitively Buddhist. You took us to our fourth step, (gasps) which is wisdom over the rational thinking about experience rather than like a lesson. Right. Instead of saying love your neighbor and understanding what that means. Conceptually, it means like really feeling it. What is it? What is the experience of loving your neighbor like? And I think that that example you just gave is an example. I think we've all had those moments where we can just see someone we love because we know them well, remembering something that they're scared to say because they don't want to bring down the room or they're mm-hmm. hesitant to bring up because they think maybe you don't want to hear about it. And you're scared to bring up because you're thinking, well, if they're not thinking about it, I don't want to make them think about this. <laughs> right. right. But actually, you you both know, right? And maybe just to take the risk and say, yeah, are you okay? Or I've been thinking about this, right? Like, yeah. like somebody like Harry, Harry's never not thinking about his parents, even if it's not right. in the forefront of his mind. You're probably never wrong to bring it up and say, hey, I care about this and I care about this part of you and I can look at all of you. I can look at that part of you as well as the yeah. the great Quidditch player part of you. I can hold both those things at the same time. To kind of trust that instinct when you feel it, I think yeah, I felt that in my life and I feel like if we're talking about experience, and I think more often than not, I fail to say something because I'm worried about being too earnest and ruining the moment or making it socially awkward. But I can't really remember a time in my life where I have done that. And I felt like, oh, boy, I, that made it super awkward and I shouldn't have. Usually it does the thing I hoped it would do, which is just recognize what was actually going on in the room. Yeah. Matt, thank you for this beautiful practice. I really loved it and everything you've taught me. I really appreciate the ways in which it is different from Abrahamic traditions. And I I hope that we do this enough that it really works on my brain and retrains my brain because this is a beautiful way to think. Yeah, I think like vulnerability, it's a practice, right? So this is our first time and I think we'll get better at asking these questions and also seeing how they relate to one another. Thanks, Vanessa. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Ruth. Hey Matt and Vanessa, my name is Ruth and I wanted to send in a voicemail after your discussion about the bugger chapter. In this chapter, the children are faced with the bugger and therefore the whole class sees each of their individual fears embodied into a monster. It was brought up in discussion that the whole class seems to be quite supportive of one another and no one ridicules each other for whatever their greatest fear is. It also says that in the classroom, everyone faces the bugger except for Harry and Hermione. As someone who's just technically finished um, my second year school experience in England, the idea of such a supportive classroom is just as magical as any other part of the novel. It can be very hard to be vulnerable in secondary school experiences and spaces. And as someone who is friends with a lot of people who have anxiety based mental illnesses, these sort of situations can cause real pain and anxiety for a lot of people. When I re-listened to this chapter and you talking about it, I had in my brain an imagining that there were a couple of children at the back of the classroom who just can't face it, who don't want to do it, who can't bring themselves to embarrass themselves is how they view it. And I also see with them one or two friends who are just trying to help them calm down and just get through the lesson. Technically, these children are mentioned, but for the books to be accurate to my own experience, I totally believe they're there and that Harry or the narrator just doesn't realise them. So I wanted to send a blessing to these unnamed children who are suffering really hard in Lupin's lesson. I hope you get the support that they needed from Lupin and that they are able to, in a private situation, 
help defeat the bog up so they are able to still excel in their academia studies. And they also wanted to send in a blessing to the one or two children who were trying to be healers in such a situation at the back of the classroom, holding their hands, giving them hugs and making sure they don't have a panic attack or something worse. It is so hard to be a healer in such a situation and I want them to know that they are recognised. I just hope that Lupin can help these children to understand their struggles and make his classroom just as accessible to them as well. Thank you so much for your discussions. Bye. Ruth, thank you so much for this voicemail. I always appreciate when someone calls attention to the people in the room who we were not previously paying attention to. And I love your imagined students in the back of the classroom. And yeah, I think following Harry, Ron and Hermione means that we are not paying attention to other students who are having just as real of struggles as our trio. Yeah. Thank you, Ruth. Especially as a teacher myself, this is a great reminder to to always like redirect your attention, right? Because even when things go well, you feel like they're going well and it feels like a big victory, a pedagogical victory in the classroom. It's always more complicated. And they're all people, always students who are feeling different things because of what they're bringing to the situation. And it's a it's a reminder to me that I can't stop paying attention, that my job as a teacher is to attend it to everyone in my class. So thanks for the reminder and thanks for the voice memo. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Betty Bricky, who is 98, a loving church greeter and grandmother. Roger James, 72, kind, patient, and a crossword lover. Jerry Schwartzman, who is 89 and a jovial lover of sweet things. Les Meller, who was a hundred and two and full of stories. Jade, who was 27, magnetic, brave, and wickedly funny. Trinity Dean Butler Pugh, who was 74, a mother, aunt, sister, and lover of God. Constance Bokolarski, who is 91, a grandmother, lover of cake, and the best co-conspirator. Carol Krell was 89, a teacher, dog whisperer, and extraordinary gardener. Rosa Valia Molino, who is 98, and a mother who outlived her daughter. Jim Hager, who is 79, a church musician extraordinaire and a kind soul. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, who would you like to bless this week from the chapter? I would like to bless Hedwig. Hmm. Hedwig has a very brief appearance in this chapter, but it's a a moment which touched me. Hedwig is mentioned because Harry talks about Sirius's owl posts being delivered not by owls, but by, you know, brightly plumaged 
giant birds that show yeah. up from some evidently tropical location. Now, who knows? Maybe Sirius is just sending tropical birds to keep people off his scent. All we know is that Hedwig is jealous. Yeah. Hedwig is a beautiful bird, good at Hedwig's job, and beloved of Harry and of the Hogwarts crew. And then these ostentatious birds show up. You can just tell Hedwig is a little bit jealous. And even the best of us have been there. Right. Even the best of us has felt those things. It's just a very human moment for this owl, a very kind of recognizably human moment for this owl. And so, you know, jealousy is normal and it's it's okay. So blessings to Hedwig. How about you, Vanessa? Who do you want to bless? I'm going to bless Dudley. Dudley's just like a one line joke for Harry in this chapter about how his diet isn't going well and he you know he's sneaking donuts upstairs and it feels like my grandma with my haircut like I get it Harry you think Dudley's fat like I get it and like I just am like tired of hearing about it and I Dudley is definitely tired of hearing about it and I just want to offer a blessing to anyone who keeps hearing the same piece of feedback for something that they can't change about themselves. Or I could change my haircut, but I did not want to. Because so, it was awesome. Because it was awesome. I, it was like a short bob with pink streaks. It looked incredible. So anyway, Dudley, I don't like that you're a bully, but your body is perfect. Next week, Vanessa, we are going to be reading book four, chapter three, The Invitation, through the theme of relief. Great. Can't wait, Matt. Our announcements before we give our thanks is that we have three pilgrimages on sale right now. A Harry Potter pilgrimage with me and Casper Turkile in Sussex, England. A Pride and Prejudice pilgrimage with Margaret H. Willison in Bakewell. And another pilgrimage with me, an Emily Dickinson pilgrimage with me. Amy Hollywood and Stephanie Paulsell in July of next year. Whoa. I know, three heavy hitters. So you can find out more by going to notsorryworks.com and clicking on Common Ground Pilgrimages. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Ruth for their voicemail, Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkile, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Replace. A, they had to replace. Replace? Is that, a, is that how I anybody think, pronounces that word? Okay. No, it's And they not. had to.